Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Manufacturing was a huge part of Pennsylvania's economy in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Even though manufacturing still has a significant role in the state, we don't make as much as we used to. This week is Pennsylvania Manufacturing Week, and Friday is Manufacturing Day. However, the Wolf Administration is encouraging young Pennsylvanians to take a second look at manufacturing jobs. To talk about Pennsylvania Manufacturing Week, manufacturing in the state, is Sherry Collins, Deputy Secretary of the Office of Technology and Innovation in the State Department of Community and Economic Development. Secretary Collins, welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment about manufacturing in Pennsylvania, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, what's the idea behind Pennsylvania Manufacturing Week? Sure. It's actually, it's a fun idea. It's something that started under the Wolf administration. Friday, October 6th is National Manufacturing Day. But we believe so steadfast in our commitment to manufacturing in Pennsylvania, and we support our manufacturers at such a high level that we want to celebrate their activities, their successes all week long. So I think it actually started on Sunday, September 30th. Mm-hmm. When you say that the, we support manufacturing so much, in what way do you support manufacturing? I'm not just I say you. I mean the Wolf Administration, the state. Sure. We have supported manufacturing in Pennsylvania for a long time. <clears throat> Pardon me. The um, National Institute of Standards and Technology out of Washington, D.C., is our federal partner. They provide funding to what we call our strategic partners in Pennsylvania and all across the country. They're known as industrial resource centers or manufacturing extension programs. And in Pennsylvania, we have seven of them. And so what we do is we provide some funding to those same organizations to help really bolster the support for manufacturing. Those strategic partners are our boots on the ground, Scott. So they're out working with Pennsylvania manufacturers day in and day out to try to help them identify new market opportunities, if a manufacturer has a challenge and they're not necessarily sure how to correct that challenge or fix it, the industrial resource centers are actually there to provide support to them. Our Ben Franklin technology partners, who I know you've heard me talk about in the past, are also supported through uh, or are also supporting Pennsylvania manufacturers as well. And again, sometimes it may be through a small investment grant that the manufacturer needs to maybe um, identify a new market opportunity and then take that market opportunity to fruition. And so they're providing level of support. Uh, we have a number of programs at the department. Our um, Pennsylvania Industrial Development Authority, PETA, as we refer to it, is a low interest rate loan program. And it is specifically designed to support these manufacturers to help them continue to grow. And not only grow in Pennsylvania, but export products across the country and internationally. So there's a lot of things that the department, along with the administration, are doing to support those manufacturers. We probably will be talking during our conversation about the past, uh, a lot of things in the past. What you just described didn't used to be that manufacturing, the manufacturing industry in Pennsylvania, anywhere across the country, needed government help. Is that, I won't say the only way, is that how manufacturers have to survive and thrive today? I don't think it's the only way. I think it certainly helps support their chances chances of success. But government support um, for these manufacturers, look, we know from going around this Commonwealth that there are a lot of manufacturers and a lot of businesses just in general that have never received any type of government assistance. And we applaud them. But for some of them that need to take advantage of this low interest rate loan program that we talked about, 
we applaud them for knowing where to to get that funding, but also being able to take that funding and put it to work so that they can, in fact, grow. Now, are these mostly startups that are taking advantage of some of those programs, or are they manufacturers who have been around for years? Yeah, that's a great question. So it's a little bit of both, and I don't have any specific uh, statistics on that. Our startup companies are going to be ones that are going to need a little bit more assistance. That's um, one, of the, one of the hardest things to do is to start the, the company. It most definitely is. And my hats are off to those people who start their own businesses, whether it be in Pennsylvania or anywhere else. Um, it is certainly challenging, but there is something to be said about those individuals and their tenacity to actually want to do something like that. And so I am a huge supporter, as you know, of, of our entrepreneurs. Um But I think what we're seeing, again, is this resurgence in manufacturing across Pennsylvania. It really is beginning to take shape again. If you look at places like Pittsburgh, where the manufacturing community and the industry sector had declined so many years ago, Pittsburgh is in this resurgence and this rebirth, and it is so exciting to watch. Okay, that that resurgence, that rebirth that you're talking about, it is not when you're talking about Pittsburgh in particular, and probably many other places across the state as well. It is not the same kind of manufacturing that it used to be. I mean, Pittsburgh was the steel town. I mean, mm-hmm. that's where steel was produced in the United States, or at least uh, was the steel capital of the United States, maybe the world. But what kind of manufacturing are we talking about now in Pittsburgh? Yeah, it's really cool to see. So we get to Pittsburgh quite a lot. Um, You're going to see manufacturers from um, a company called Four Moms. And Four Moms is actually a company that utilizes a robotics technology to make and produce high-end baby furniture. And you might think, okay, a high-end crib? Well, not necessarily. Yeah, I'd like to know what a (laughs) high-end crib is. Some of the things that uh, Four Moms are producing are products that um, the child sits in. So you can go right down the street here to Target. We can go down when we're done and we can check this out. I'll show you. Um, You have coupons? I do. I do, always. Um, So you go into Target and you see this this kangaroo or this mamaroo, I think is what it's called. You put the baby in it. And so... I believe you may have children, you may not, but back in the day, we used to put the baby in the little seat and you would use your foot to rock it, right? Not anymore. Four Moms has developed this product that you put the baby in and it's got all these different buttons on it that you push and it simulates this motion and that motion. And for those of you that can't see me because we're on radio, I'm doing this cool little (laughs) side dance. Um, But that's, that's just one thing, you know? And then you look at manufacturing Most manufacturers today have embedded technologies, and that's what we're seeing are these embedded advanced manufacturing technologies that our manufacturers are utilizing to make a better process, to make a better product, to reduce worker fatigue. I know a lot of times people get a little weirded out about robotics and what that's going to do, but the reality is is that it actually supports our workers, and it allows these companies to be more productive and more efficient at the end of the day. But the reality also is is that technology has taken away many of those jobs. We could argue that on another segment if you want. No, I think that if most people, if they have in their, their mind what a factory, what a manufacturing plant used to look like. Mm-hmm. It is totally different today. It is. And, you know, manufacturers today do just as, as you described, that they are using technology, that there's a lot more that goes into it than just, you know, hands, a man or woman's hands on a machine, making something, putting it together, passing it down the line. It's much different than it used to be. But the reality is, is that What's happened over the past 30 years is competition from overseas, and technology did increase to the point where it took humans' jobs away. I will not argue with you on that. What I will tell you in the companies that I have seen myself, I have witnessed where a robotic arm has increased efficiencies. And some of these companies, one that I was just at last week, has actually developed its own robotic piece of equipment to um, help with the efficiencies of their product line. So we've got some individuals, and rightly so, that are somewhat concerned about robotics and how that's going to impact manufacturing. 
But then we have other manufacturers who have actually embraced the opportunity and are utilizing the technology so that they can, again, produce that better product or improve that process and take some of that worker fatigue off. I mean, manufacturing is a tough job. There is no doubt about it. But I think what we're seeing is we're working smarter and not necessarily harder anymore. You described Pennsylvania Manufacturing Week as kind of a fun thing. Um, I saw on the website that it was described as a celebration of manufacturing in Pennsylvania. Who's the target audience of this? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's everybody in Pennsylvania. I think it's to celebrate our manufacturers, their accomplishments, their work teams, but it's also to bring awareness. And so what we have seen and what the Wolf administration has supported is a program called What's So Cool in Manufacturing, which is a really neat idea that came out of the Lehigh Valley. The Manufacturers Resource Center is one of those organizations that I referenced earlier. It's an industrial resource center. And they've developed this program where basically what they're doing, Scott, is hitting these students that are in their eighth grade uh, grade level. And they're providing them with uh, GoPro cameras and they're creating teams and they're going into manufacturing facilities all across the Commonwealth now. And they're going into the manufacturing facilities and they're doing interviews. So can you imagine as an eighth grade student taking a team of, of other students with an advisor going into a manufacturing plant, asking questions, videotaping it, putting it all together, and then participating in this huge celebration at the end of this program and seeing what team actually won based on the votes that the parents, the educators, and friends have actually made on their behalf. These students are having the opportunity to go into companies like Just Born, the maker of Peeps, or... Um, uh, Martin Guitar. I mean, I never had that opportunity in eighth grade. I wasn't looking for it. So one of the things that we're trying to do is change the perception of manufacturing. And it has to start not only with the students, but also with the parents. Because as a parent of older and young children, my older children were encouraged to go to the traditional high school, not our vocational school. And I was very narrow-minded, and I am extremely open to say that. I thought that they needed to go to the traditional high school, get their four-year education, get their four-year college degree. And they've both done it successfully, and I couldn't be more proud. But it was short-sighted on my part to assume that they didn't have the ability or the wherewithal to go to a trade school like that, that they could have gone and learned robotics. They could have gone and learned... Um, you know, diesel mechanic, anything that they wanted to do. But in my mindset, they needed to go to the four-year traditional high school and then move on from there. See, that was a sense that I was getting from uh, Pennsylvania Manufacturing Week that a big part of it was to encourage or at least have young people think about careers in manufacturing. I mean, they've heard so many negative things about manufacturing over the years, meaning that those jobs weren't going to be there, that there wouldn't be job security, wouldn't pay as much as what it used to. And you're right, so many people, not just here in Pennsylvania, but in our society overall, been that, uh, you know, high school kids, your your, your career, your, your path to success today is to go to your traditional high school, take academic classes, four-year degree, get your bachelor's degree, maybe get a graduate degree, start off making a good salary, and there you go. You're set for life. But what's happened in the meantime is so few people, I don't know if few is the right word, but not as many people are choosing those vocational schools or trying to get uh, pursue careers where they need skills to work in the manufacturing industry. So that's a long way of saying I get the sense that part of this is to encourage young people to take a look at that. Right. It's awareness. It really is. It's awareness building. And, and again, I mean, it's incumbent upon educators and parents to demonstrate to these students what opportunities exist. And so I am probably one of the biggest supporters of Pennsylvania's manufacturing industry sector. Um, certainly, Governor Wolf, obviously, having been a manufacturer, manufacturer himself, understands the importance that manufacturing plays in our economy. And he is a huge proponent for it. And so we're very fortunate that we have a governor that understands its role 
recognizes it, but more importantly, wants to support it at its highest level. Donald Trump ran for president last year saying that he would bring manufacturing jobs back. I saw a figure from uh, the federal government that said that Pennsylvania actually has lost more than 8,000 manufacturing jobs since Trump was inaugurated in uh, January. Now, that does not mean that's going to be a continuing trend. That could turn around. But my question is... uh, Are there manufacturing jobs out there for those young people who want to get the training, want to get the skills, and want to pursue a manufacturing job? There are. There most definitely are. And again, we travel this Commonwealth every week. If it's not myself, it's our secretary, Secretary Davin. Um, It's Deputy uh, Weaver, Executive Deputy Secretary Weaver, is out on the road today. We hear it all the time. There are jobs to be had. Part of the biggest challenge is that gap in skill set. And what I mean by that is that there are individuals that are ready to take a position tomorrow, but some of them don't even have the soft skills that are needed to actually enter into the workplace. Soft skills. Soft skills. Um, We talked about cell phones earlier. Turn it off. You go into work, turn off your cell phone. You can't be texting. You can't be on Facebook. You can't do this. You can't do that. You need to focus. And in a manufacturing career specifically, focus is critical. You can get hurt. You can screw up a line. There's so many things that could go wrong. But at the end of the day, you and I are old school, right? We didn't have cell phones when we first started. Mine is in my bag. It's off. We talked about this. It's soft skills. It's being at work on time. It's coming to work dressed appropriately. You can't go into a manufacturing facility with your shirt tail hanging out and your hat on backwards. There's a level of professionalism that is, in fact, required. So those are the soft skills. And then there's the training aspect to it. So what we have created under the WOOF administration is Manufacturing PA, which is a new initiative that really puts the emphasis on manufacturing. When I say that we want to support our manufacturers We want to support our manufacturers. We will continue to provide support to our industrial resource centers. Again, our boots on the ground all across the Commonwealth that are doing great work to support the manufacturing community. We also want to provide a level of support to our colleges and universities. Our community colleges are a major institution in Pennsylvania, and they provide such a fantastic level of support for all types of industry sectors, but they're providing that support to our manufacturing community as well, where they're actually providing the training that is needed for these employees to be able to get up and and start working in that capacity on a much quicker basis. Um, We're just, we're really excited about getting this announced. I would suspect that probably within the next week or two, you're going to hear a bigger announcement about it, but we're excited that we have the opportunity to bring this to bear after, after about two and a half to three years of trying to get it done. Get it done. Get it done. Get manufacturing PA up and running. Yeah. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com. Our guest during this portion of the program is Sherry Collins, Deputy Secretary of the Office of Technology and Innovation at the State Department of Community and Economic Development. It's Pennsylvania, it's Pennsylvania Manufacturing Week. We're talking about manufacturing in Pennsylvania. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave a message or a question on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. Let's take a phone call from Heather in Linglestown. Heather, you're on the air. Hi. Um, Hi. I worked in manufacturing for 20 years, um, worked my way up, and the one thing that I would caution and maybe people need training in manufacturing is, you know, they, they highlight, oh, record gains and, oh, you know, my... My, our CEO just 
made, um, just went and had a new yacht made and all this stuff. Meanwhile, taking away the things that our country and all of our manufacturing, you know, where we used to support workers, where we would have a company picnic, we would have, you know, Easter hams and Thanksgiving turkeys and, and a Christmas bonus. And we've taken those things away. Meanwhile, we're promoting how CEOs are making these record bonuses. And your workers see that. And that's how you get worker sabotage. That's how you get workers who don't will switch to another company. Um, you know, we don't appreciate our workers anymore. And that's one of the main reasons I got out of corporate America and started my own business was because I was sick of seeing people get rich and rich and rich on the backs of our workers. Thank you. Thank you very much for your call. Uh, you know, what she's talking about, uh, a lot of emphasis has been media. That's where you hear about a lot of uh, CEOs making big bucks and things like that. But her her point of uh, treatment of workers. Yeah, I think that's important, you know, and, and that's the one thing. Um, it's a great point, Heather. Uh, that's my hometown, by the way. So I was hoping maybe it was my niece calling in from Lingolstown. And, <laughs> and so I'm glad to talk to another Heather from Lingolstown. Uh, and thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm not specifically sure uh, what your business is, but I, I thank you for advancing Pennsylvania's economy and, and uh, your dedication to that. Um, it's a cultural issue, right? The leadership has to start at the top. And what we're talking about today is not about the culture of manufacturing, so to speak. We're talking about the opportunities that manufacturing brings to bear. But cultural issues and leadership issues, I think, are something that need to be addressed in a lot of companies. We are fortunate at DCD. We have a great leader in Secretary Davin. It's created a culture that allows us to be creative and aggressive, aggressive in a good way um, by getting out and supporting our businesses. But her notion of the way that things had been done versus how they are now, we see it in every industry sector. And it's unfortunate because she is absolutely correct. Workers want to be rewarded, and it's not a monetary reward all the time. Sometimes it's a box of duck donuts, Scott, that you can bring into the office. It creates that morale. It boosts the morale, and people will work when they feel like they are appreciated. And that goes across every industry sector. So if my team is listening, I'm probably going to have to go for donuts now this morning. I think you should on the way back. So the skills that are needed. We talked about uh, one of the things that has changed that uh, it used to be in a manufacturing job. Well, and, you know, I, I hate to keep bringing up the past, but let's face it. Pennsylvania manufacturing is not the same as it used to be. It's not just Pennsylvania. It's everywhere. But it used to be that, uh, you know, a, a young person could graduate to high school, go right into a manufacturing job, making good money, maybe stay there for the rest of their lives. Most of the time, those jobs were union-related. They had job security. They had good benefits, all those things. Uh, but one of the things that was different than today is that you would get on-the-job training for the most part. Mm-hmm. You touched on this earlier. What skills are needed, and how does a young person get those skills? Yeah, so that's a great question. One of the programs that we have in Pennsylvania is called WedNet, and the WedNet program serves as a key driver for helping our manufacturers develop a competitive workforce. So they are providing, they're receiving grant dollars to actually provide training to incumbent workers. So let's say I get hired tomorrow at a manufacturer. There's a skill set that I do not have that is necessary for that particular position. Through this WedNet program, the I think it's the community colleges, and don't quote me on this. It's not, it's not in my wheelhouse, and I should know it, and unfortunately I don't have all that at my fingertips this morning. They will actually provide incumbent training to these workers to help them be brought up to speed. If there is maybe a manufacturing uh, company adds a new line to its process, the workers need to be trained on it. And so there are, in fact, dollars that are available for these 
these um, organizations to train their incumbent workers. You listed some of the manufacturers that are successful here in Pennsylvania, but uh, without talking about individual companies, what are some of the products that are being manufactured most often or the industries that uh, Pennsylvania manufacturers are producing those products for? See, you see the smile on my face, right? Because this is the favorite part of my job. So having the opportunity to meet with our companies, there is a snowboard company. Um, Can I say the names? Is that okay with you? Sure. Great. It's not that I'm not into promoting them. It's just that I was looking for the industries. But go ahead. Yeah. So let me share this one with you. We just talked about this last night at home. Um, Our son is actually being uh, diverted to Colorado. Uh, for the military. And so the first thing he says is, Mom, I get to go snowboarding. And I'm like, great, Gilson Boards. It's perfect. Gilson Boards is actually a company that was founded in 2013 in a donkey pen. (laughs) A donkey pen. You don't do a lot of snowboarding at a donkey pen. I'll tell you what, it is the most amazing story. It really is. Um, Great group of young men that started this company. And it's in, um, you know, in the the heart of Pennsylvania. But it's basically an artisan snowboard manufacturing company that sources its hardwoods from sustained harvested poplar trees just 15 minutes from their farm. So, again, central Pennsylvania, I want to say... I'm trying to think back to the sweatshirt that I bought from them when I went on my tour. That's the other thing. This job's gotten a little expensive because you want to be supportive. Um, I think it's it's Milroy, Pennsylvania. Heart of Pennsylvania, right? right Nothing right. else around. But this is a company that has done so well, and it has received the support both, um, you know, programmatic support, but also connections through our existing partner network. So I had mentioned the IRC program earlier. The Industrial Modernization Center in Williamsport provided support to them. So did Penn State University. When And you think, okay, a snowboard company, what are you doing? You're just making snowboards. But the reality is, is that there is a lot of material that is used beyond the wood to make sure that the board itself stays water resistant. So they went to Penn State University and they received support from the material science department. It's the number one snowboard, I'm going to say, on the market today. So we're really excited about Gilson Boards. Again, a great group. Um, Bassett Ice Cream. It's the oldest ice cream company in the United States. Originally started in 1861 in Pittsburgh. Who doesn't love ice cream, right? Another one. The Almac Group. That's a company that is actually a pharmaceutical development and manufacturing company. It's an Irish company that located in Pennsylvania with the support of our Office of International Business Development. I mean, we have got so many amazing companies. Channel Lock, you know, the the blue-handled um, pliers and, and tool set that you can find at the local Home Depot or Lowe's. That is a cool company. And if you've not toured that facility, that is one that I would definitely get to in Meadville, Pennsylvania. A couple other industries that, and you touched on one, but pharmaceuticals, I understand, is very big here in Pennsylvania. Uh, shipbuilding in in Philadelphia. So some of the traditional, although I wouldn't call pharmaceuticals traditional, shipbuilding probably is. Uh, but pharmaceuticals, I know even in Lancaster County that there are some places, even here in the mid-state, where pharmaceuticals are being manufactured. I mean, you you talked about some of these entrepreneurs, but what about some of the bigger traditional companies that are ma- are manufacturers? Yeah, they're. I mean, they're they're an amazing asset in our regions, obviously. Um, but there again, when you talk about workers in particular, a, a life science company is going to need a tremendous workforce. And it's not always the scientist. It could be someone um, like an administrative assistant that has to to be brought up to speed and, and be utilized for that type of industry sector. What's a makerspace? Oh, makerspace. Man, they are so cool. So makerspaces are basically locations where individuals can walk in and try to um, uh, utilize their a 3D printer that may be on site or software, electronics. So let's say you have an idea, but you're not necessarily sure how you make it. You can actually utilize the services of a makerspace and see if you can bring your idea to fruition. 
Are there a lot of them around the state? Uh, they're starting to pop up. Uh, we just recently took a look at all the maker spaces. I don't have the number offhand, but it is something that is certainly growing. We've got a number of maker spaces across Pennsylvania that are really cool, and uh, they're open for for entrepreneurs and companies that may want to take a product that they currently have and see if there's another way to re- rework it. Let's take a phone call from Leon. Leon, you're on the air. Uh, hello. Thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, it's a great program. Enjoy listening. Thank uh, you. The the educational aspect is certainly uh, you know one of the requirements, um, and we do have good universities in Pennsylvania, CMU in Pittsburgh, and U of P down in Philadelphia are, are world class. Um, but the the whole concept of education needs to be married with uh, a, a, a governmental concept that's friendly to business. Can you comment? How friendly is Pennsylvania uh, vis-a-vis, let's say, the other states in the Northeast? Just a concept of, of, of the concept of tax structure and what have you. Uh, just as a side note, I've been involved in manufacturing for 30 years as a, as a controller. Uh, prior experience also in other areas. But um, I've seen, you know, even the company I'm at is, is moving operations offshore simply for, uh, you know, lower wage costs. And you. still highly skilled, but the wages are lower, let's say, in Mexico. Leon, the, th- the big deal here is, you know, to promote continuation into the future, uh, not the past and not the past industries that have been here in PA already, but like future industries to locate here and look at it as a great place to have a business. Thank you very much for your call, Leon. And the point he makes is a good one, that, uh, okay, we're focusing on manufacturing today, but this is something the state, chambers of commerce, uh, other organizations are doing all the time, trying to find a way to get businesses to locate in this state. Pennsylvania has the highest corporate net income tax rate in the state at 9.9%. I know, or the country, I should say, Um I know that that was something that Governor Wolf proposed very early on in his administration was reducing that rate. Of course, that money had to be made up somewhere. Pennsylvania sometimes, when statistics are put out, does not is not looked upon favorably, maybe in the middle of the pack, sometimes other statistics in the lower part, as being business friendly. How do you overcome that? Yeah, that's a great question, and I I have to applaud the Wolf administration for making the the effort to try to reduce that that fee, Scott. Um, as you know, we've we've got a number of challenges right now as it relates to Pennsylvania's budget, and um, I think we're trying to do what's best for our business community by providing uh, the support that they need. The governor's action team. So when we talk about companies that are locating to Pennsylvania. They work tirelessly to make sure that they are working with that company, but also doing so in a prudent manner because we are using taxpayer dollars. And so everything that we do in conjunction with the Wolf administration is done in such a way that not only are we supporting the business community, but we're also taking into account that we are stewards of taxpayer dollars. So we're not out giving incentives to companies um, and then putting our hands up and kind of walking away. I mean, it is a very stringent process, and, and I applaud the governor's action team for the work that they do. Um, I think Pennsylvania is a great place to do business. I do think that we certainly have some challenges that we need to overcome. And I think personally that we are trying to overcome those challenges. Challenges Some of the the tax structure, for instance, that that Leon had mentioned. Um, But I think that there are a lot of things that we are doing right in Pennsylvania. And again, by supporting this industry sector and all other industry sectors, working very closely with our partner organizations, uh, whether it's our sister agencies at the Department of Labor and Industry or the Department of Education, to make sure that our workforce is getting trained the way that it needs to be trained. I think that we've made a lot of advances, um, but I also think that, that everybody also recognizes that there are some things that we could certainly do better. But I think at the end of the day, um, Pennsylvania is a great place to do business. Sherry Collins is the Deputy Secretary of the Office of Technology and Innovation at the State Department of Community and Economic Development. Secretary Collins, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Pennsylvania and really the entire country is dealing with an opioid crisis that started with many people using painkillers that often led to heroin. Of course, opioids is just one of many substances that have led to dependence. Alcohol, methamphetamines, and cocaine all come to mind. At the same time, there are a lot of people who have worked hard to recover from substance use. And in Pennsylvania, that usually means they went through a county program. We're going to be talking about recovery for the remainder of the program today. Kristen Varner is Director of Training and Advocacy for the Race Project, as well as a Certified Recovery Specialist. And Mike Krafik is a Certified Recovery Specialist and Supervisor with the Armstrong, Indiana, and Clarion Drug and Alcohol Commission. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Hi, thank you. If you have a question or a comment about recovery, about treatment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. You know, we hear so much about the opioid crisis and the large number of people who are dying of overdoses. But what about those in treatment and recovery? During this time when more people are using opioids, are more people being treated and in recovery as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, especially with the uh, innovation or the emergence of medication, uh, we are reaching a whole new population that would not have been reached before through, um, you know, through getting them into treatment and then into recovery. And what we really like to look at it, you know, when we talk about medication is medication-assisted recovery and pushing them into the recovery process. Um, and, I, and I know as a, the emergence of other programs through the Health Choices Program, there's been so many more resources for individuals um, to get them into recovery, such as recovery centers and, you know, recovery specialists, which Mike and I both are. So there's a lot of programs, um, but I think that what we deal with is the stigma of, you know, getting into recovery because we don't talk about that too often. So I appreciate the, the chance to talk about it this morning. So there still is, I mean, I, yeah, I, I can understand that there is a stigma, but when we have so many people who have re reached crisis stage, they st there still is a stigma about getting treatment? Yes. I, I think what I know is, well, first of all, there's actually 23.5 million Americans in long-term recovery in the United States. We don't hear about those people because, this, because people that are in the midst of an active addiction do not dress up well. We do not do things we, we, that we would normally do if we weren't ingesting chemicals in our body on a daily basis. So therefore, there's a shame, the stigma, the guilt that comes along with that. Then you want to add on top of that friends and family members who think that they cause the addiction, right? So it kind of goes in this whole like tornado of things where even when people get into recovery, it still can be a shameful, stigmatizing things where you don't want to walk into your employer and say, hey, I'm a drug addict. You know, um, I used to steal or I have charges on my record from this. And as a, you know, as a unfortunate, um, you know, process is that we end up stigmatizing people. And, you know, just to give you a little example, I had um, the chance to have one of my friends interviewed recently, and he was revived by Narcan over 30 times. They did a newspaper article on him, and the comments on this man, who is now in recovery, who is now working in the field, who has gotten a college education, who's a father, who's getting married, who's Giving back to his community, the comments were mostly he should die or he should have died. And I, I feel like that's a problem with, with humanity and not just with the disease of addiction and the stigma. Without making a judgment, though, I, I mean, you understand that there are going to be people who are going to look at that and say, you know, we're trying to help this guy and he just can't seem to, to kick it. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, I know that we know in particular anytime that there's comments in a newspaper or on a radio station, TV, that people can get cruel. They have a, a lot of courage they wouldn't have. But do you, do you understand where some of them are coming from? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm in part of a lot of town hall meetings. In fact, I have one this afternoon. And, you know, I said this to my husband the other day. I said, you know, I don't know if I would show up and get information on a town hall meeting about diabetes, right? It's until you're affected by it, do you show up and do you get the information, and then do you start understanding the disease concepts and how this really is a disease of the, of the brain? 
and how, you know, when we treat individuals or, or for instance, revive them with Narcan, they're at the worst possible state of their life. They're sicker than they've ever been, and they essentially have a brain disease, and we can't expect them to make, you know, decisions that are going to better their lives at that moment. Mm -hmm. So, no, I absolutely understand where you're coming from. Hey, Mike, uh, we're mentioning, we're talking about opioids, and as I said in the introduction, I mean, almost a day doesn't go by, I'm sure it doesn't for you, where we hear uh, about the opioid crisis. But are there other drugs and alcohol at this point that uh, there are a lot of people still being treated for or uh, are in recovery? Sure, absolutely. Um, Alcohol is one of the number one drugs of choice, if you will, for the reason for people that are admitted to treatment, at least locally in the three counties that we work in. Opioids and heroin are right up alongside there at number one and two. Um, So they're both very prevalent and common. And one thing that I'm seeing more of a emerging trend in more rural areas, uh, in particular Clarion County, is the emergence of methamphetamines, where we're seeing not as many fatal heroin overdoses, uh, but we're still seeing people seeking treatment or being arrested for methamphetamine charges. But on the other side of that, we're also seeing people finding and sustaining recovery um, that are able to stop drinking or stop using some of those other substances. Um, you know, people in recovery, we like to say that the, the drugs are just a symptom of that brain disease. So regardless of what, other, what, what substance it is, uh, it's about the addiction process and the change in thinking Uh, whenever our brains are hijacked by these substances of abuse. Do you know or have any idea why uh, there's been the increase in methamphetamines in Clarion County? Well, I think because it's a a rural area and you can manufacture it yourself, and they have a a few people that were able to do that and show some other individuals how to do that. So it really kind of becomes more readily available in those areas. Um, I think it becomes a little more difficult to find some of the other substances. So people find ways and means to, to create a substance in that area. Kristen, you talked earlier about uh, medications that help in recovery now and in in treatment. What kind of medications are we talking about? And would you go as far as saying it's been a game changer, that it helps uh, to make treatment more successful? Yeah, in my personal opinion, absolutely, but it is also a double-edged sword when we're looking at medications, Um, and depending on what medications you're using. There's um, a a medication for alcohol dependence and opiate dependence, um, which is called Vivitrol, which is an injection you get once a month, um, which actually blocks the cravings of either alcohol or any type of opioids. Um, It also helps if you were to use them, the the drug simply would not work. Um, However, it works so well that sometimes people feel like they're cured. And we know you cannot be cured from the disease of addiction. So what's important with any medication that you use is that they, they change their lifestyle. They get involved in counseling. They go to groups, um, some sort of mutual support groups. They stay away from other drugs. They reenter into the community. There's so many other things that we need to do than simply just stop using and taking medication. And I, I like to equate it to if uh, I had heart disease, and I just took the heart medication, and I didn't change my lifestyle, eventually I'd end up having a massive heart attack because the medication wouldn't keep up. Um, there's also methadone and there's Suboxone, um, and there's many other medications, but it's important to know that if we use these medications to um, make sure that you're in some sort of supportive services, and uh, recovery specialist is a really good supportive service to add to those medications. Uh, both of you are in recovery, and something that, uh, Kristen, that, that you said is, that is so important, that it is a lifelong thing. You, you're, you're not cured, that for the rest of your, your life, you'll be recovering. Uh, Mike, tell me about, uh, about you. I mean, what are you recovering from, and what do you have to deal with on a daily basis? Well, sure. I am recovering from a variety of substances. I mean, at the end of my addiction, heroin was my drug of choice, but I started out with marijuana and alcohol, experimented with a variety of substances leading up to the first point in where I tried heroin. And then it really, my life um, kind of decomposed from that point on. And we were talking about county funding for uninsured individuals earlier. Um, The agency that I actually work for now 
sent me to treatment, paid to send me to treatment multiple times. I actually was, went to an inpatient rehab facility nine times between 2002 and then when I finally found and sustained recovery in 2008. Um, during that time was revived with naloxone five times. Um, so for me, my recovery was a process to where I would go to treatment and kind of do well for a little while and slip back into some old patterns or, or behaviors for one reason or another, would relapse and need to go back to treatment. Uh, and I see that is similar for a lot of the people that I work with, is that it's a process. Some people do get it the first time, but a lot of times um, they, there's some trial and error there, and they really need to figure out what's going to work for them. You first of all, congratulations on uh, on your your recovery. Uh, how long have you been in recovery? April twenty fourth, two thousand eight. Okay, so, so it's been a few. Up this April, it'll be ten years. I, I actually hate to ask this question, but I mean, uh, someone who is in recovery, are you are you ever tempted? So, I mean, in doing the kind of work that I do, I get to meet and work with people that are in active addiction or in early recovery. And I know for me, I consider myself fortunate in that. And it really helps me stay grounded and remember where I came from. Uh, and it's very important, particularly for recovery specialists that are working with and helping people find and sustain recovery, that they stay connected to their own recovery program. So I, I really need to stay grounded and remember uh, where I came from. As far as temptations, I, I just, it, not the way I, I was in early recovery. I'd say in the first year, it, it was tough and, as I would describe, a struggle. Um, after that, to this point, it's been more of maintenance and, and maintaining the progress that I've made so far. Are there stages of recovery? I, I think so. Yeah, so early recovery and then that stabilization period and then really looking at the maintenance phase where you're just maintaining the work that you've put into that point. Kristen, what about you? Well, um, you know, like everything Mike said, I, I, you know, it sounded like my story. But, yes, I uh, entered into recovery on September 2nd, 2005, and um, just like Mike, I started with marijuana and alcohol. I progressed um, not knowing. I, I didn't know about the genetic predisposition. I didn't know that it, it ran in families, that if you have someone in your family, you're more likely to carry on that genetic predisposition, and all you have to do is add a drug to it. Um, so, you know, I was a college graduate. I, um, you know, after college, I had a series of good jobs, and then I kind of declined into multiple bartending jobs, and the combination was really in 2004 and 2005, where I spent over a year in and out of different treatment centers, different bartending jobs, and it was really... Um, you know, I, I received life-saving treatment through Cumberland County Drug and Alcohol Commission where, you know, my parents were spending money, you know, thousands of dollars getting me into treatment. I didn't have insurance, and we found out about the Drug and Alcohol Commission, and they gave me the, the treatment that I needed. I was in treatment for about, I would say, a total of five or six months. And when I was in treatment the last time, and I, and I don't say that the other treatment centers didn't work, what didn't work for me was I was never willing to apply what they told me. And I think that for a lot of us that are in recovery or, or in active addiction, we think that our way works, you know? And I had to really get down to the, to the fact that my way got me addicted and my way got me, ended me up in multiple treatment centers. Mm. So I had to change my thinking. Well, um, yeah. Well, I was, I was going to say congratulations to you, Kristen, and, and, you. and both of you. Because, I don't know, over the years, run into so many people who now their jobs, their careers, are helping other people who have a substance problem and have become so dedicated. So congratulations and uh, on, on all your career and uh, your recovery as well. So we've been talking a lot about uh, counties. And, you know, one of the things when you talk about uh, County government and these commissions that you've been affiliated with that, uh, you know, they get, a lot of the money comes from the state. All the time we are talking about budgets. We are talking about tight dollars. 
At the same time, we have an opioid crisis where there are more and more people who need treatment, uh, who who do want to recover, maybe don't have it. You know, finally, they will admit that they do need to recover. So let's talk about that and the money needed and how it actually happens that counties are, that the recovery programs are going through counties. Sure. If I could could start off with that, um, you know, every dollar spent on addiction treatment saves at least $7 in criminal justice costs. And then you just can multiply that when you add in the savings and healthcare costs. Whenever somebody finds recovery, not only do they oftentimes stop getting arrested or committing crimes to support their addiction, uh, but they also become productive members of society. In 2008, I was on Medicaid. I lived in public housing. I was being funded or supported by one form or another, some sort of county or community program. Uh, in 2012, I bought my own home. I'm full-time employed. I'm married with three children. I pay taxes. I give back to my community. So looking at sort of the economic payoff and the investment that the county made into my treatment and recovery process, I, I don't, it's really even hard to quantify sort of the return on that investment. Kristen, is there enough money? Oh, there's never enough money. Um, but what what I do know is that, you know, when we had the, when the passage of Medicaid expansion helped a lot of the counties tremendously because historically counties were running out of money um, halfway through the fiscal year. You know, they'd still put people into detox, but we know that it takes the brain about a year to 18 months to heal. So detox is about, what, five, seven days if you're lucky. They were coming out and going back on the street and then maybe getting IOP. Since Medicaid expansion, a lot more people have been able to get on onto Medicaid, and as a result, the counties have been able to um, start forming new programs, um, funneling money into new things. For example, um, in Cumberland County, we now have a Vivitrol prison program, which we didn't have before because of this, um, where inmates in the Cumberland County prison are being identified as having a substance use disorder, are getting that injection I talked about prior to being released, and then they're following up with a member, a certified recovery specialist in the community and being followed for up to a year. So, I mean, so many programs are coming out of this. There's a warm handoff for overdose survivors where um, recovery specialists are on the scene of overdoses and staying with that person. There's recovery centers popping up. There's just more money now to assist that after you get out of treatment, what happens? Kristen, mm. um, I only have about 30 seconds left. Oh, sure. What are the biggest challenges you're facing right now? I will say it's always stigma. It's stigma. Um, that That's always going to be my <laughs> biggest challenge. And that's hard to overcome, but uh, it's something has to be thought about. Kristen Varner, Director of Training and Advocacy for the Race Project. She's also a certified recovery specialist, Microfix uh, CRS, and a supervisor with Armstrong, Indiana, and Clarion Drug and Alcohol Commission. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you for Thank having you. me. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, bringing quality care to your community through Harrisburg, Community Osteopathic, West Shore, Carlisle, Hanover, Lancaster, Lidditz, and Memorial Hospitals. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com.